Dear father and mother, I once more embrace the opportunity of addressing these few lines to you, hoping they will find you all at home in good health. I like this colony very well, for I am informed that a man, when he gets his ticket of leave, he may do very well if he is only steady and keeps out of bad company. And dear parents, I have not the least doubt of this. The time of my probation is from the time I received my sentence, four years and six months before I shall be entitled to a ticket of leave. But the governor informed us that by good conduct and willing industry at our work, we could shorten our time a great deal. I'm sure that you too are often troubled that I have been transported away from you. Innocent. Griffith Boyer, Australian convict. Two hundred years ago, in the second decade of the 19th century, the world was a strange, fascinating, and precarious place. It was a time of global conflict and uneasy peace. A time of great environmental change. A time of disaster and miracles, anomalies and mysteries. It was a time when our modern world began to emerge. And a time like almost no other in history. This podcast is about stories, true stories, of this remarkable era. This is the Second Decade Podcast. My name is Sean Munger. I'm a historian, author, teacher, and podcaster. You can visit the website for this podcast at secondDecade.net. Second Decade is spelled out, all one word, two D's in the middle. Thanks for joining me on this journey into the past. Episode 29, Australia, Part 2. On May 31, 1813, three men, explorers, stood at the top of a ridge that would later be named Mount Blacksland, after one of them, and looked down on the valleys below, which had never before been seen by Europeans. Though this place had long been settled by Australia's original inhabitants, the Aborigines, these three men, Gregory Blacksland, William Lawson, and William Wentworth, thought of themselves as having gone where no man, at least no white man, had gone before, into the interior of the wild continent of Australia. From their vantage point at the top of Mount Blacksland, they surveyed a pretty country filled with grassland and forest, gently flowing rivers, and plenty of wide open land. These three pioneers, who were accompanied by several servants, a few of whom were apparently convicts, had broken open the last barrier on the last habitable continent to be colonized by Europeans. That barrier was the Blue Mountains, which separated the settled part of Australia, New South Wales, from whatever lay in the interior. Land that Australia's colonial governor, Lachlan Macquarie, hoped could also be colonized. Though two of the men, Blacksland and Lawson, were born in Britain, the third, William Wentworth, had a different pedigree. He was in the first generation of European descendants actually born in Australia. His father, Darcy Wentworth, had come to Australia in 1790. He'd been in trouble with the law back in England, though not technically a convict. And in fact, William was conceived at sea during the long voyage to New South Wales. Though sent to England in 1802 for his education, William Wentworth returned down under in 1810, at the beginning of the second decade, 
and immediately found himself an important person, virtual aristocracy. His father was now a prosperous landowner, and Wentworth himself received an official commission as a marshal from Governor Macquarie. After taking part in the journey of exploration through the Blue Mountains, Wentworth himself became one of Australia's wealthiest men and a leading political figure. In the 1850s, he was involved in the drafting of Australia's first constitution, an event that helped transform the old convict colony into a real country of its own. When he died in 1872, he was lauded as one of Australia's founding fathers. Yet as a young man, toward the beginning of the second decade, this founding father found himself standing on that ridge looking down into what would be Australia's future and the end of its infancy. You could mark the 1813 Blue Mountains exploration as a fulcrum in Australia's colonial history, the watershed between two competing facets of Australia's national identity, prison or country. But it'd be too simplistic to claim merely that Australia had two faces, prison or colony, because its identity is equally marked by the worldviews and experiences of its indigenous inhabitants, the Aborigines. Thus, Australia's history is less like a mirror with two faces, and more like a three-legged stool, on which rests the puzzling history of a country that remains, even today, somewhat hard to figure out. In the previous episode of this series, I tried to explain where the idea of Australia as a colony came from, how and why the British began shipping their convicts there in 1787, and how the colony quickly became a degenerate, booze-soaked mess, even suffering a military coup triggered by a struggle over control of the colony's most valuable commodity, rum. I also explained how, in 1810, there was a new sheriff in town, or new royal governor to be precise, the Scottish officer Lachlan Macquarie, who began to see Australia as less of a human waste dump and more of the seed of the farthest outpost of the British Empire, though it was going to need a lot of work. Now we continue to try to figure out the riddle of Australian history in the second decade. How do we explain this very unusual country and its completely unique circumstances? Join me now for the second and final part of this series, Australia Part 2. When it comes to prisons, governments, both in the second decade and in modern times, tend to have unrealistic demands. The ideal prison to a government bureaucrat is one that's absolutely secure so that no one ever escapes, terrifying enough to deter potential criminals, and costs nothing to run, or even better, makes money. The British government quickly found out, to their cost, that they couldn't have all of these things, or even the best two out of three, when it came to Australia. As for cost, forget about it. The system of transporting convicts to Australia, provisioning the ships, paying for food and clothing and tools of the convicts that would live there, and the military authorities that guarded them, New South Wales was definitely no bargain. As for security, it depended on your definition of the word. Australia was far enough away that you could be pretty sure that any of the riffraff sent down there on the ships would never again make trouble back in England. So in that sense, Australia was very secure. The convicts did often escape once they were in Australia, giving rise to the idea of the bush ranger, also known as a convict bolter, a wild rogue living off the land, roaming around, killing kangaroos for food, and occasionally raiding settlements. In fact, a lot of bush rangers died out there in the wilderness, 
especially in the early days of settlement, convicts with no grasp of geography literally thought that Australia was connected to the Asian mainland. If they escaped their chain gangs and overseers, some would make a desperate dash across the desert, hoping to find refuge in China. During the second decade, bleached skeletons of unlucky bolters were not an uncommon sight in the wilderness north and west of Sydney. As for whether the specter of transportation to Australia deterred crime in Great Britain, well, that was mostly in the eye of the beholder, and it gets us into the treacherous territory of the theory of punishment in prisons, a theory which was in considerable flux in Western Europe at exactly the time Australia was founded, and into the second decade and beyond. Without getting into the theories of Michel Foucault, which would drive away all of my remaining listeners, except the masochistic academics who like to sit around and talk about Foucault, Suffice it to say that the idea of whether punishment deters crime, and what kind of punishment deters crime, was as impossible to know in the 18-teens as it is today. But some people back in England firmly believed it did deter crime, and as Australia was defined as much by the concept of what it was supposed to be, as by what it actually was, the perception is important. When Lachlan Macquarie took over as colonial governor of Australia in 1810, he had a couple of guidelines laid down by the British Colonial Office. First and foremost, he had to clean up the mess left behind by the Rum Rebellion. We talked about that last time. Obviously, he had to administer New South Wales as an efficient prison, but he also had to cut costs. The British government had told him there were no extravagances allowed, which meant Macquarie couldn't build anything except structures directly related to military or prison functions. But one of Macquarie's key ideas was the notion that New South Wales had to become a real colony, with functioning institutions and a civic life of its own, beyond just being a pen for criminals. Building an urban design was part of his vision. Macquarie, who wanted to start building Sydney according to some rational plan, found a way around the government prohibitions on quote-unquote extravagances. Thanks to the Foreign Office, Macquarie had emergency powers to administer the colony, was the lack of, say, a functioning hospital really an emergency? Well, according to Macquarie, it was. Designed by him and possibly his wife, New South Wales had no architects at first, the first building to go up was a three-story hospital on a brand new street, modestly called Macquarie Street, built with convict labor. And as for cutting costs, Macquarie financed the hospital with a special excise on rum and tried to motivate the contractors by kicking a portion of it back to them. Macquarie was never above a little graft when he thought it would suit his purposes. Incidentally, one of the contractors who built Macquarie's hospital was Darcy Wentworth, father of future explorer William Wentworth. The so-called Rum Hospital was controversial. How could it not be? But it was the start of something, both physically for the city of Sydney and psychologically for the people of Australia. It was in many ways the beginning of New South Wales as something more than a prison or a patchwork of small farms. The hospital took a couple of years to build. Because it was being constructed with convict labor, and the convicts sent to Australia really weren't very good at anything, even before it was finished, Sydney Hospital was already falling apart. Then, in February 1814, exactly the kind of man that Lachlan Macquarie needed stepped off one of the convict ships, an architect. Francis Howard Greenway, who had designed some buildings back home in Bristol, England, had pled guilty in 1812 to forgery. He might have been innocent, but we'll never know, and for our purposes it doesn't matter anyway. 
In any event, Greenway was sentenced to death. Yes, forgery was a capital crime in England in the second decade, but it was pretty customary to commute such sentences to 14 years' transportation, which is what was done to Francis Greenway. So that's how he came to be in Australia, and when Macquarie found out about it, his Scottish ears pricked up immediately. Hmm, an architect. A convict, but an architect nonetheless. One of Greenway's first commissions was to inspect the not-yet-finished Sydney Hospital. He found it was in terrible shape. A lot of it had to be torn out and redone. But it still wasn't in fantastic shape when it opened in 1816, but at least it was functional. And in Australia, in the second decade, you had to take what you could get. Amazingly, though rebuilt many times, parts of the original Sydney Hospital still stand today. It's one of the landmarks of the city, and a milestone in Australia's colonial history. Francis Greenway went on to design several more commissions for Lackland Macquarie. Hyde Park Barracks, also on Macquarie Street, is one of the most well-known. It was built in 1818 to house male convicts who were in the direct employ, I use that word advisedly, of the colonial government. It continued to house convicts until 1848. Hyde Park Barracks is now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Some more of Greenway's early work found its way into the civic history of Sydney. On July 11, 1816, Macquarie laid the foundation for a lighthouse on Dunbar Head at the entrance to Sydney Harbour. The lighthouse was called, of course, Macquarie Lighthouse. Blazing into glory for the first time on November 30, 1818, lighthouses in the second decade generally used whale oil, the sandstone structure was already crumbling within five years and had to be shored up. But hey, at least it was a functioning lighthouse, and Macquarie got to put his name on something else. Francis Greenway was also pardoned by order of, guess who, Lackland Macquarie. Despite littering the landscape with buildings, many of which are historic landmarks today, assuming they're still standing, Greenway's subsequent history was a sad one. He eventually had a falling out with his great patron over, guess what, money. Greenway's fees were said to be too high for a government contract. Macquarie's successor dismissed him from his post. He went bankrupt and died broke in 1837. Between 1966 and 1993, Francis Greenway's face was featured on the Australian $10 bill. That's rather ironic. Greenway was a convicted forger. The heights to which the lowly can climb in Australia. Macquarie was certainly changing the face of the colony, and starting to give it some real civic life but his rampage of buildings started to annoy the colonial governors back in Britain, as well as the free settlers of New South Wales, who began to arrive in greater numbers after the war with Napoleon ended in 1815. For all this building, Macquarie needed skilled labor, or as skilled as he could find in the boatloads full of convicts. He needed guys who worked construction, could lay bricks, frame a house, install tiles, or quarry stone. The people who came to Australia who had these skills were generally on the lower end of their trades back in England, but in New South Wales they were highly valued workers. Macquarie, who personally greeted every convict ship that arrived in Sydney Harbour, picked them right off the boat. Between 1814, when Francis Greenway arrived, and 1820, the year before Macquarie went home to Scotland, his colonial government sucked up 65% of the skilled labour arriving in Australia. This caused conflict with the free settlers, the exclusives, who wanted some of this labor for themselves. You see, Australia was all about labor. Colonial societies usually are, and this one was no different. 
Just to refresh you, exclusives were free people who emigrated voluntarily from England. Although they were pretty much nobodies back in old Blighty, in Australia they saw an easy way to become landowners and aristocrats, and the land was there for the taking. But a farm or even a sheep ranch takes labor. Supposedly that's what the convicts were there for. Since the early days, the colonial government of Australia had leased out convict labor to free settlers. If you were some big sheep rancher in Australia, chances were good that you had a convict valet, a convict maid, and a convict taking care of your kids. In fact, chances were good that your wife, or at least your girlfriend, was a convict. Numerous free people took lovers from among the convict population and had children with them. We saw that with the case of the Wentworth family. Darcy Wentworth couldn't even wait to get to Australia to unzip his wick. He got a girlfriend and knocked her up on the voyage to do South Wales. I guess there's nothing else to do on a sea voyage of 18,000 miles. The result of that little ring-a-ding-ding was William, who we'll return to in a bit. Regardless of what the settlers wanted, or thought they were entitled to in the way of cheap labor, the convicts were still under the administration of the colonial governor, and Lackland Macquarie was definitely in charge. The way labor worked in Australia was called the assignment system. The government, who theoretically controlled and was responsible for the convicts, could assign them to private citizens as laborers. But obviously not all convicts were assigned. The government could keep the ones it wanted and treat itself to their labor. That was what Lachlan Macquarie did with the convicts he needed to build his public works projects. And there was a lot of labor needed. In the second decade there were no steam engines in Australia. Horses were too valuable to be used to do things like haul logs or plows, and water power was an impossibility, because no streams anywhere near Sydney were reliable enough to power windmills. That meant that every bit of work done in New South Wales was done by human power alone. Although they were worked hard, convicts were not slaves. It wasn't like an American slavery, where an owner owned not just your labor, but your body, your family, and you had no more rights than a toaster. The Australian convict system was also different than, say, serfdom in Russia, a concept recently examined on the Dead Ideas podcast, because convicts were not tied to the land. Indeed, they were British citizens, and once their sentences were completed, or pardoned, they could return to full status as private citizens, emancipists they were called. Lachlan Macquarie's tenure as governor of Australia was marked by tension between emancipists and exclusives. By taking the best skilled workers for the government, Macquarie made enemies of the exclusives, and by treating convicts under his charge reasonably well, he made Australia a little bit less of a fearsome and tragic place. This violated one of the reasons why the British government started the colony in the first place, to instill fear in criminals back home in England. In order for that to work, Australia had to be terrifying and cruel, and leniency threatened that. The fact that Macquarie also made enemies of the exclusives, the free settlers, proved to be his undoing. In January 1819, London sent an agent to New South Wales to take stock of the whole colony, ostensibly to report back as to whether Australia, the prison, was functioning the way the British cabinet intended. The agent, John Biggie, a lawyer, arrived at Sydney in September 1819. Right from the beginning, Biggie didn't seem to like Macquarie very much. One of Biggie's earliest friends in Australia was none other than John MacArthur the former Royal Army officer who popped up in the last episode, as the mastermind of the Rum Rebellion, and who eventually set himself up as the biggest sheep rancher in Australia. MacArthur, now back in New South Wales after a stint in England, was something of Macquarie's nemesis. 
With friends like John MacArthur, the notion that Biggie's report would turn out to be critical of Macquarie's administration is about as surprising as the revelation that there are cowboys in Texas. Biggie's report reflected the criticisms of the exclusives that Macquarie was hogging too many of the best skilled laborers, and he was just too nice to the convicts, hoping to curry favor once they became emancipists. And Macquarie's lavish expenditures on stuff like hospitals and churches, which the colonial office told him not to build in the first place, certainly didn't help. Belagured by Biggie, the exclusives, the colonial office, and the climate of Australia, Macquarie was, after all, from a desolate island off the coast of Scotland, the governor tendered his resignation in November 1821. He'd served almost 12 years, far longer than any other governor of New South Wales. He and his wife returned home to Scotland. He died there in 1824. In that same year, however, the British Admiralty made a small but consequential endorsement of one of Macquarie's decisions. Although the term Australia had been used before, principally by explorer Matthew Flinders, who sailed around the continent in 1803 and wrote a book about his travels, published in 1814, it was not until December 21, 1817, that Macquarie wrote an official dispatch recommending that the place be called that, Australia, instead of New Holland, another name in vogue at the time. In 1824, the British Admiralty officially adopted the suggestion. Thus, Lachlan Macquarie, the tough but progressive Scotsman who was dispatched to clean up the mess that was Britain's farthest-flung colony, is responsible not merely for leaving his own name everywhere it would fit, but naming the place itself that he helped forge, Australia. The seeds of what Australia was to become, even if planted earlier, truly began to grow in the second decade. The history of Australia in the later 19th and particularly the 20th century would increasingly be the story of settlers, both emancipists and exclusives, and the little empire they built, largely through sheep ranching, in this faraway corner of the world. Although sheep were multiplying prodigiously in the fields and paddocks of Australia in the 18-teens, as we saw with the case of John MacArthur, Sheep and wool did not dominate Australia's economic picture until well into the 1830s. Before that, Australia's natural wealth was found in its waters, specifically in the form of whales and seals. The oceans around Australia, and particularly Tasmania, known as Van Diemen's Land during the colonial period, used to swarm with whales. And as we've seen before on this show, the second decade was a hugely formative era for whaling and sea commerce in the Pacific. Hawaii was the crossroads of Pacific trade, linking Asia with the new nation of the United States, which was proving to be a country of enthusiastic and profitable seafarers. Indeed, there was so much cross-Pacific trade and contact between Americans, Hawaiians, British, Chinese, Spanish, and even Russians, that modern historians are increasingly discovering how the Pacific in this period was really knotted together with trade networks. Spices from Southeast Asia, furs from Russian America, sandalwood from Hawaii, hides and tallow from Spanish California, and significantly whale oil and seal skins from Australia. It was Americans who taught convict Australians how to hunt whales. The first whaling expedition in Australia was led by an American, Eber Bunker of Plymouth, Massachusetts, who lent his ship to the British to transport convicts to New South Wales in 1791. It was the beginning of a huge industry, by the end of the second decade, 
proceeds from whale-related products, especially spermaceti, that's the white greasy stuff found in the heads of sperm whales, was funding a lot of the importation of the stuff Australia needed, from clothing to tools, salt, spices, and yes, rum. Whaling and sealing operations took an environmental toll. Seals were incredibly plentiful off South Australia and Tasmania. Sealers ravaged the coasts, clubbing the animals to death, skinning them, and leaving the rest in huge stinking piles all over the place, giant mountains of rotting seal meat. By the 1820s, colonial officials were worried that seals were being hunted to extinction. The seal trade was a boom, particularly to the bushrangers and escaped convicts. They were much harder to find out on the distant coast, and some of the more rapacious bolters tended to kidnap aboriginal women to serve as concubines, and to teach them the arts of seal hunting, at which the aborigines were very good. There's a certain romance to whaling and sealing in the 19th century, a certain sense of adventure. The reality was it was an ugly and bloody business. Stinking piles of guts and blubber, men covered head to foot with blood, smelly shipholds full of moldering seal skins, not a very romantic picture in reality. But this was how the market economy worked in the waters off Australia in the 18-teens. Economic development, such as it was, came at the cost of environmental degradation, a pattern we see in our own time. With a cultural heritage just barely sprouting in Sydney and a budding economy, however bloody, slowly getting wired into the world system, Australia in the second decade needed one more thing to begin its transformation into a colony of its own. It needed a destiny. In 1813, three explorers, Blacksland, Lawson, and Wentworth, provided it. Before 1813, the Blue Mountains, called that because they looked blue as they hung on the Sydney horizon at dusk, were a barrier that separated the colony not just from the interior of the continent, but from its future and its prosperity. By this time, every inch of land in the neighborhood of Sydney had been granted, and just about anything that would grow crops was being cultivated. The Blue Mountains were the barrier that hemmed in Sydney's expansion. It was across the Blue Mountains, the real outback, where bolters starved to death trying to reach China. But everybody knew there had to be something on the other side of the mountains, and there were signs that the mountains weren't impenetrable. They were no barrier to the Aborigines, for instance, who knew at least two routes through the mountains. There's a haunting place in the Blue Mountains called Red Hands Cave, where the handprints of adults and children, people who lived and died tens of thousands of years ago, remain to this day, a ghostly reminder of just how long Australia has been inhabited, and by who. The explorers couldn't be expected to know or care about this sort of thing. On the one hand, white Australians typically discounted Aboriginal knowledge of the land, even though the Aborigines had been living there for 50,000 years, and white people for exactly 0.05% of that time. On the other hand, some sources claim, a minority of sources I should say, that the three explorers brought with them an Aboriginal guide. It would certainly seem prudent to have done that, and it is clear that there was more than just Blacksland, Wentworth, and Lawson on the expedition. Just like Lewis and Clark were accompanied by a retinue of army troops, slaves, and Native Americans on their famous expedition into the interior of America, the valiant Australian trio had their own hangers-on, including four convicts, five dogs, and four horses. There might have been an aborigine with them. If there was, I can easily imagine later generations of Australian historians, predominantly white historians, 
airbrushing the native, if there was one, out of this shining picture of pioneer triumph. But frankly, it seems a bit far-fetched that the explorers could have accomplished their feat without some help from the natives, even if indirectly. This was not Blackstone's first attempt across the Blue Mountains. It was his third. He had quite an incentive to find more land across the mountains. Gregory Blackstone collected land grants the way my nine-year-old nephew collects Skylanders toys. First granted 2,000 acres of land in 1806, where he raised 80 head of cattle, by the end of 1812, Blackstone had collected so much land, and his cows were so good at multiplying, that he needed more open space to build his bovine empire. He went to Lackland Macquarie and asked for permission to lead an expedition to cross the Blue Mountains. As that could only benefit the colony, Macquarie agreed. Having been chastened by previous failures to cross the mountains, mainly by trying to follow rivers through them, this time Blackstone decided on a new strategy, and that was to take the high ground instead of the low ground. They'd travel over the ridges, not the lowlands. One wonders if Blacksland suddenly got a clue about how the Aborigines had been doing it for thousands of years. On May 11, 1813, Blacksland, Lawson, Wentworth, a convict named James Burns, another named Samuel Fairs, and two others, one of whom may have been our mysterious Aboriginal guide, set off from Blacksland's farm at the west of Sydney. It was not an easy journey. The Blue Mountains are characterized by a chain of big sheer cliffs, and the lowlands by dense forest. Given the amount of poisonous insects and spiders that live in relatively benign places in Australia, this country must have been really dangerous in the second decade. Blacksland kept a journal of the expedition. In typically modest fashion, he writes about himself and the others in the third person. Here's what he wrote on the second day of the journey. Quote, May 13, 1813. They had not proceeded above two miles when they found themselves stopped by a brushwood much thicker than they had hitherto met with. This induced them to alter their course and to endeavor to find another passage to the westward. But every ridge which they explored proved to terminate in a deep rocky precipice, and they had no alternative but to return to the thick brushwood, which appeared to be the main ridge, with the determination to cut a way through for the horses next day. This day some of the horses, while standing, fell several times under their loads. The dogs killed a large kangaroo. The party encamped in the forest tract, with plenty of good grass and water. End quote. Generally, the three intrepid explorers would go out in the morning, leaving two of their party hanging around back at the campsite, maybe to guard it from ravaging kangaroos or something, and they'd blaze the trail until midday, then turn back. The idea was not merely to reach the other side of the mountains, but to blaze a trail that others could follow later. This they did. In a place called Katoomba, there is an old gum tree that bears three initials, B, L, and W. The tree died in the 20th century, and its remnants are surrounded by concrete. But supposedly this old trunk is one of the trees that the explorers marked on their journey in May 1813, or the initials may have been carved later in the 19th century by tourist operators, a claim that evidently ignites controversy whenever it's mentioned. I have no dog in that fight, but it's certainly possible that it's one of the original blaze trees. On May 31st, 1813, victory was finally in sight. Atop one of the high plateaus of the Blue Mountains, the explorers reached the edge of the cliff and stared out onto the future of Australia. Fine green territory, well watered, forested, and relatively flat. These were the downs that would be the ranch land and farms of 19th century Australia. 
Drogita of the Thornbirds fame, and the source of wealth for those lucky and smart enough to grab it before it was gone. Like other settler colonial societies, most notably in the United States, Australia's destiny was now coupled to internal expansion. Manifest destiny down under. As I said at the beginning of this episode, the fact that a native-born Australian of European descent, William Wentworth, was there, is interesting and symbolic. It would take only a few short generations, the lifetime of a single person if he or she was long-lived, for Australia to transition from a penal colony to a country of free settlers, with their own culture and institutions. William Wentworth, who was conceived on one of the first ships to Australia and lived to see the end of the transportation system, is an embodiment of that journey. It must have been a triumphant moment for them, but also an uncomfortable one. The journey had taken a lot out of the explorers. Blacksland records in his memoirs that they were exhausted. The food they had brought with them, salted meat, was almost gone. One man had a bad cold, their shoes and clothes in tatters, and, quote, the whole party were ill with bowel complaints. Imagine, you reach a milestone of exploration and indeed one of the defining moments of an entire country, and suddenly you clutch your tummy and have to squat. It took six days for the party to return to Sydney. Governor Macquarie was delighted and granted each of Blacksland, Wentworth, and Lawson several hundred acres of land west of the Blue Mountains. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out to be the land of milk and honey that Blacksland in particular expected. He went to Macquarie with a scheme to form a large agricultural company to exploit the resources of the land west of the Blue Mountains. Macquarie wouldn't bite at it, and indeed Blacksland never got to graze his prodigiously multiplying cows out there. Nearly ruined by drought and an economic downturn in 1814, Blacksland was one of the many settlers who turned against the governor. Blacksland, in fact, was one of the loudest complainants to wag his tongue to John Biggie when he came to Australia in 1819 to report on the colony, the report that indirectly led to Macquarie's resignation as governor. Among his other many talents, Gregory Blacksland helped found the wine industry in Australia, having planted some grapes on his farm near Sydney. In fact, he exhibited some of his wine in England in the 1820s. Returning to New South Wales, he lived a long life that was depressing at its end, losing his wife and children in rapid succession. Blacksland hanged himself on New Year's Day, 1853. Lawson, the other explorer whose final days I haven't recounted to you yet, did settle west of the Blue Mountains, in Bathurst, the first town in Australia's interior. He made many more explorations, became a politician, and died in 1850. Australia still had several more decades of convict servitude ahead of it. The numbers of convicts transported to the colonies, which eventually included Van Diemen's Land, New Zealand, and Western Australia, peaked in the 1830s, by which time the British Empire was profoundly changing. Slavery had been abolished, and the quasi-slavery of transportation was soon the target of reformers and progressive-minded politicians. Convict transportation to New South Wales ceased in 1840. An economic depression kept the prisoner system alive in Van Diemen's land for a few more years, but it was the Australian gold rush of the 1850s, perhaps a direct imitation of the California gold rush that just preceded it, which lit the final fuse down to the end of transportation. The economics and demographics of settler Australia changed profoundly as a result of the gold rush. The last convict ship docked in Western Australia in January 1868 almost 80 years to the day after the first one had arrived in Sydney Harbour. 
During those eight decades, over 160,000 convicts had been transported to Australia, and the free population, both emancipists and exclusives, grew by leaps and bounds. Australia officially became an independent country on the first day of the 20th century, January 1, 1901. Proclaiming it was one of the last things Queen Victoria ever did. She died on January 21, 1901, after Australia had been independent for three weeks. Australia continues to struggle with the legacy of its convict past. I have read that the convict period is covered only lightly in Australian textbooks, and that most people with convict ancestors tend to gloss over that part of their family history. As I observed in the first episode of this series, the history of Australia has always seemed to be a bit of a sleeper. I even had one of my Australian fans of this podcast, who lives in Melbourne, tell me that the first episode of this series taught him a lot about his homeland that he didn't know. For a history teacher like me, that's a great compliment. I don't know what to make of the history of Australia, but I do know that its past continues to shape Australia's national identity in unpredictable and ever-changing ways. Even in our own century, that strange continent down under is still very much a work in progress. If you like this podcast, please do me a favor. Leave a star rating and a review on iTunes. The vast majority of listeners to Second Decade have found us on iTunes, and it will greatly increase our reach. If you have social media or talk to other history buffs, give Second Decade a mention. Also, check out the other great history podcasts on the Recorded History Network. Podcasts like History in the Banking, The Dangerous History Podcast, Dead Ideas, Election College, Explorers, The China History Podcast, and The Way of Improvement Leads Home. And remember, the second decade book is coming. I know you don't believe me, but it really is coming. I'd love for you to contribute to my Patreon account. That's patreon.com slash seanmunger. You can also read a lot of history and a lot of other stuff at my personal website, seanmunger.com. My historical sources for this episode include The Fatal Shore by Robert Hughes, published by Alfred E. Knopf, 1987. Music credits. Our theme music for this podcast is called The Long Road Ahead by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com, used under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Special thanks to Joe Wedgeksani, sorry if I mispronounced that, who portrayed Griffith Boyer. Joe is on the Stuff What You Tell Me podcast here on the Recorded History Network. This podcast was written and recorded by me, Sean Munger. Good night. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.